Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Russ Carpenter, and it's a great story as to how I found Russ. I was fly fishing at Family Fish Camp uh, on the eastern side of Mount Shasta with my dad and my nephew. Um, And we were at fly fishing camp, and it was Family Fish Camp. And it was really funny because the whole the whole camp is dedicated to teaching young kids how to fly fish, uh, and they do it for six weeks um, every summer. And on the last week, they have a special camp, which is family fish camp, where you get the young kids uh, teach them how to fish, along with teaching the adults their parents. Usually, it's their uh, fathers, or uh, in this case, it was a grandfather, uh, how to fish as well. Uh, and it's a really cool family event. Uh, and as always, I am uh, the odd one out, uh, which I seem to find myself in these situations quite a quite a bit in my life, uh, and I find them enjoyable. Sometimes they're lonely, but uh, but this one was really funny because I was uh, the only thirty mid thirties year old, uh, and then there was a bunch of uh, older fathers, older grandfathers, um, and then uh, younger kids. Uh, so it was really a new type of uh, odd man out experience for me. Uh, but it was really great because we were in, in nature and fishing and all this learning. I learned how to cast properly, which is really interesting. Um, and so one of the counselors was named Russ Carpenter, and he was teaching these kids how to fly fish and how to make flies and do all this different stuff. And he was also a neurobiologist who studied with Robert Sapolsky um, and, at Stanford. And, uh, and so I've been, as you might have heard on this show, I've been talking a lot about Robert Sapolsky and his book Behave. Uh, so it was a real treat to uh, sit down and interview Russ in the middle of nowhere uh, in, on the eastern side of, of Mount Shasta um, in this small little room, which was usually dedicated to learning how to uh, tie fish ties. So I really, really love doing this interview. I definitely, I feel like, uh, I feel like Russ could be that that scientist that I need on this podcast. That scientist that I can go to uh, for for questions. Also, Russ is just like a very genuinely good human being who uh, brings light and cheer into everyone around him. Uh, it was really fun to see that at, at the fish camp as well. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this this episode. If you do, please let me know what you think. Uh, if you want more scientists on the show, I just reached it out to somebody. Uh, who is studying the connection between connective tissue, cancer, uh, and stretching and chronic pain. Um, And this is a a personal personal interest that I have about stretching and and chronic pain particularly, and also I want to avoid having cancer. Uh, I'm very interested to to see whether that is under an individual's control. Um, but yeah, I'm going to do a lot more science stuff. I love science, so I love, I love bringing that into this, into this show. So if you're interested in that, please let me know. Uh, and I do want to let everyone know that I am doing these 10-minute uh, breathwork sessions throughout the day. Um, you can sign up very easily. Just send me, send me your email on Twitter, um, and I'll add you to the list where I'm giving the schedule for these every day. I do about four or five of them a day, and it's t- only 10 minutes. So there's literally no excuse you have uh, for not doing it. It's 10 minutes. It's on Zoom. Um, it's free for now. Uh, so that literally you have no excuse uh, not to do it, and it will bring a lot of uh, joy, equanimity, and peace into your life. Um, I'm not saying that I am going to do that. I'm saying that focusing on your breath for a small period uh, of, of the day, you can do this on your own. You don't need me for this, and I highly encourage you to do this. Um, uh, just doing it for a very short amount of time will make m- massive improvements in your life. Um, uh, it has done so for me. I'm reading into the science behind why this is, this is happening uh, it is a very, very easy way uh, to promote more equanimity in your life. And we all need some more equanimity in our lives because the world seems like it's going crazy. It might not actually be going crazy, but does seem like it's going crazy at this moment. So nothing wrong with a little bit more equanimity. Uh, so if you do want some equanimity, either do this on your own or join me for a session. I do about five or six of them. It's really easy. You don't even need a video camera. You just need to listen to the words. Um, it's really simple. So send me a message on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III uh, with your email and maybe a few times that are preferable for you. I'm still figuring out the kinks and the scheduling. Um, eventually, I want to offer a lot of these, uh, and I'm really excited as to where this is going. Also, uh, I, I'm, I, I want to start bringing this work into hospitals with people with immune system deficiencies who are isolated on their own. Um, 
and can't have human inter- in-person human interaction, I want to start doing these remote breathwork sessions for them. So if you know someone who is either experiencing that or is a doctor who works with these type of people, I would really, really like to talk to them. Um, I'm not doing this for money. This will be a completely uh, volunteer basis. Uh, and I, 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 want, I want to spread connection to those uh, that don't have it and, and don't have that access and, and are physically unable to have that connection with other people. Um, and the breath is such a good way to do it. As I've been learning from this woman that I'm going to interview, uh, uh, autonomic nervous system, we can affect the autonomic nervous system through breathing, through stretching, uh, through massage, through acupuncture. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not saying cure these things. I don't think if you have leukemia, breathing is going to cure it. Uh, I do think it will make it more comfortable. Um, and maybe it will have a salutary effect on, on, on the cancer. Uh, I, I, probably not, uh, by that stage, it's probably too far. Uh, but maybe it could prevent it. I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to figure this out. I have, I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, okay. Hopefully this isn't too long and, uh, hope you have a great day. Please let me know what you think of this episode. I love doing it. Uh, hope you guys have a great day. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Russ, and what do you do? I'm a lecturer in the program in writing and rhetoric at Stanford University. I'm also the writing specialist in the Department of Biology, and I teach fly fishing and outdoor education also at Stanford. I also teach some continuing studies courses in presentation, particularly how to give technical presentations. And that's super interesting for me because I, I like to go into technical details here on the show. Uh, and also the coolest thing is, is that we're sitting in the middle of a fly fishing camp in, in like in outside of, uh, outside of Shasta, Mount Shasta. Uh, and Russ has been ta- teaching us how to fly fish all about, uh, and he's been teaching me a lot about fish brains and the similarities between fish brains and human brains. I'd love it if you could explain what we talked about yesterday about the stress response in fish. Uh, and how that's similar to the stress response in human beings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I want to echo how awesome it is that we're a fly fishing camp uh, just north of Mount Shasta. Uh, one of the beautiful parts of teaching at, uh, in higher education is you get the summers off. And I use those summers to go fishing a lot and to do a lot of reading and some writing. And this year I've spent four weeks teaching at fly fishing camp. It's just mm-hmm. been great. Wait, have you done this before? This is my first year here at this camp. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's something that I'd love to do more in the future. I started teaching fly fishing at Stanford four years ago. I'm working towards becoming a casting instructor, and I take people out fishing a lot. Um, more of a naturalist than a fisherman. I'm just as likely to stop and look at some, uh, you know, lilies, uh, a leopard lily, or a cobra plant, or a kingfisher, uh, or a tree. Really, anything in nature. <laughs> I think everything, everything's really neat. Uh, but I love I love the ecosystem sort of approach. This is the reason I like fly fishing so much: entomology, ecology, biology, all of those things linked together. And we're you know in this whole area we're in is basically because of Shasta Mountain, right? Like that's the whole that's the the pin in the whole wheel, right? Is that this mountain creates the snow, and then the snow comes down in the rivers and creates these ecologies of of bugs and all these different things. So Absolutely, Mount Shasta is a volcano. Yeah, it's an active volcano. It's one of the last two volcanoes in the Cascade Range. Huh. Uh, which runs up the Pacific Northwest, so it's Mount Shasta, and then just slightly south of us, about another 100 miles, is Mount Lassen. Mount Lassen erupted in 1914. Oh. So these are active volcanoes. All of this rock you see around here is volcanic rock. I mean, we are in the shadow of the volcano here, <laughs> about as close as you want to get to an active <laughs> volcano, really. Interesting. Um, but yeah, absolutely, the the mountain is, is the center around this. This is uh, 50 miles east of here is high desert. Uh, sage brushy here but we're in big pine forests with grassy meadows and uh, it's beautiful right now of course it's snowy and cold in the wintertime interesting yeah and so why why do you do what you do why how did you get into it uh teaching fly fishing all of it oh well you know i was uh, always wanted to play with fish uh that, that was a passion in my life i had an uncle that was a commercial fisherman fish for salmon i would ride the greyhound bus uh down to meet him on spring breaks and and bait hooks and, and fight salmon in, hand lining them for commercial sale. Uh, it was like, you know, my own version of paradise as a child, uh, catfishing and, and everything as a kid. So I no surprise when I went to college, I played football, but I also studied fisheries, fisheries biology. And it was a passion of mine. I was uh, sort of serendipitously got in, involved in a master's program 
where where a professor that I had asked me, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And I my honest response was, I don't know. I want to play with fish. And he looked at me kind of strange and said, you know, I play with fish. And I thought, what? He said, yeah, I study their brains. I'm a neuroscientist. I study fish brains. I'm interested in aggression and stress and how that influences behavior. And uh, I would love to have you as a grad student in my lab. Hmm. And he said, have you ever thought about being a neuroscientist? I said, no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not a single time. (laughs) Never once did I think about it. And he basically told me, you know, you come early to class. You're always working. We did field work and lakes, like limnology and stuff. You never shirk a task. You're always psyched to be there. And he said, I can't teach those things. I can teach you how to be a scientist. Mm. He said, let's do it. And I, I said, okay. I, that's actually how I started my graduate school. Like <laughs> one afternoon, just conversation off the cuff <laughs> with a professor. And two days later, I was enrolled in the master's program at the university. And for uh, you know, just under two years, got my degree. Wow. Uh, from there, I actually did study the effect of social aggression on... Um, learning and memory in rainbow trout. And this is really sort of where my research arc was as a master's and PhD student. I did my PhD at the University of South Dakota. Uh, I did my postdoc at Stanford. I studied another type of fish, an African cichlid, and, and broadly we studied how puberty is controlled by the brain and what factors. And I'm particularly interested in stress mm-hmm. and how stress influences pubertal development. Um, and then from that, I, I got interested in science communication. Stanford realized they sort of had a moment where they had to enhance what they were providing as far as communication skills and tools to scientists. Mm-hmm. Even before that, we realized that if you wait until someone already has a PhD in something mm-hmm. uh, or they're getting their PhD, it's so hard. It's just, it's so hard you can't also learn this whole other thing, like how to be a good communicator. It's something that you have to start early. And so one of the things I get to do in the program in writing and rhetoric, and, and one of the things I love so much about it is I get to work with freshmen, mm-hmm. sophomores, juniors. I get to show them the importance of being a good communicator and how it's actually integral to everything. Mm-hmm. Just sitting down here to talk to a relative stranger on a podcast, <laughs> some of the conversations we've had in the last couple of days are just incredible. We're communicating in a way that is, we're passionate, but we can also understand mm-hmm. each other. And that's not something everybody has. It's certainly not something that we're prioritizing in undergraduate education. And is it something you can teach? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. We don't reinvent the wheel. I mean, in the program in writing and rhetoric, and I, I, I won't uh, lie to you, when I was contacted by the head of the program in writing and rhetoric as a postdoc at Stanford, I've been working with the oral communication tutor group because I was just naturally really good at giving presentations. Mm-hmm. I became one of these tutors. I was the first ever postdoc tutor. The director of the program contacted me and said, we're interested in uh, bringing a scientist on board in our program to help sort of change some of the topics and, and maybe engage undergrads in a different way. I was like, sure, 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 of course. You always say yes to an opportunity. Let's go check it out, right? And so, you know, we, we talked for a minute and, and they hung up and, and I had a, a time set to meet him in a couple of days. I, I went to the internet and looked up rhetoric. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm classically trained as a scientist. I have a degree in fisheries biology, a, you know, a STEM guy. I, I didn't, even though I probably took communication classes, I, I remember just it little bits of them. I didn't care. I wanted to be out touching stuff and you know, playing with pipettes in the lab and, and all of those things. So um, I, I realized that, you know, rhetoric is the, it's the art of discourse. It's how we communicate. Uh, it's much deeper than most people mm-hmm. think. It's been around for a long time. Plato, Socrates, the rhetorical triangle, you know, who are you as the author? Who's your audience? Mm-hmm. What's the purpose of this podcast, of this, you know, presentation, of this email and then what's the goal? What, what do you want to take away? Understand the rhetorical situation before you start writing a paper or doing whatever you're doing. Mm. And, and like, that's a little nugget. You can have that. I'm handing it <laughs> across. Uh, that can actually change your life. Yeah. That right there is enough. If you stop and think about that before you do something, it can be really useful. So we can teach that. 
And, and I think that's really important so we can, we can teach those steps. Another part of it has to be you have to care. Mm. You know, I, I like mm. to tell my students, I don't know if I can cuss, but like, act like you give a shit. Yeah. You know, why don't yeah. you do that? Act like you give a shit about this thing and then I'll care because you care. Mm. Right? Yep. Oh man, there's the bees are dying. And we're like, oh, that sucks. Yeah. And you're like, do you like ice cream? Did you know ice cream won't exist because we don't have bees that are pollen? You know what I mean? And they're like, I'm interested. Yeah. Right? So the art of storytelling, the idea that you should tell a story, we can teach all of those things. Yeah. You know? We can't, we can't necessarily make you better at it. And that's kind of a thing that I have to tell my students. Like, okay, if you're a crappy writer, I can give you tools and, and let's... Let's work on stuff. Let's talk about language. Let's talk about sentence structure and paragraph structure. Let's think about flow and transitions. But you can know all that stuff and not do it. Yeah. You, you can lead a student to knowledge, but you yeah. can't make them think. And that's the key thing about learning. And I'd love to talk about in this context of fish as well, is that learning requires a certain sense of like, what is it? It's emotional. It's very emotional. You have to, oftentimes the best lessons are very stressful and like uh, have to go through that emotional layer. And they, if they stay at the cognitive layer, then you, in the, but then the difference between the cognitive and the emotion is not as stark as most people would say, right? Yeah. Well, emotion is super important. We talked a little bit about Robert Sapolsky. Mm -hmm. When Robert Sapolsky was a graduate student at Rockefeller University, one of the things that he showed, and it was like a, a huge finding was an acute dose of cortisol in a culture of hippocampal neurons causes dendritic branching. And what I mean by that is it causes more neuron development. You get more connections to dendrites for a neuron with a small dose, and a, 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 not a small dose, a, a large dose, but very rapidly an acute dose. A chronic dose mm -hmm. causes pruning, dendritic pruning. You actually lose those connections. Interesting. This is done in isolation, you know, but it's been followed up by chronic stress versus acute stress in animals. Dominant and submissive animals uh -huh. have that same thing, right? If you're the low chicken in the pecking order, not only does it suck, you experience physio physiological and neurobiological issues. Mm. You're going to die sooner. I mean, that's just it. That's a fact. So stress influences not just the way we feel, but how we can learn, mm. which I think is real interesting. It also makes sense. And like, I think the example he uses in white zebras don't get ulcers is I'm out, you know, primitive man picking berries. There's a, some rocks over here and it appears to be a cave and there's a lot of really good berries there. Oh my God, there's a predator that lives there. Mm. That's very scary. I run away. It was stressful. You want to remember that. Mm-hmm. Like geolocation, you want to remember that. Remember what that felt like. Remember what that smelled like. So that in the future, you can avoid that. Acute stress response, increase your ability to make that memory. Mm -hmm. Right? Live next to those predators all the time. Constant state of fear. That can actually cause the opposite. Mm -hmm. You become... And that, would you say that most people in our society right now are under a state of chronic stress? <laughs> I would say that there are more people today experiencing a state of chronic stress worldwide than ever before, mm, I think. Yeah. I think, you know, there are a lot of factors that play into that, and the individual stress response is always different, right? Um, we're, we're one of the other guests here is a Special Forces veteran, uh, been in, in multiple fields of engagement across the world, and I bet if all the shit went down while we were out here, He'd be a leader. You know what I mean? Yeah. His stress response is going to be different than our stress response. I'm probably going to start panicking well before he starts panicking. Even in a serious situation like Gus the bear, you know? Uh -huh. And I'm like, oh my God, there's a bear. And he's like, okay, <laughs> what do we do if there's bears? Like he's researching his catalog in his head. I know you could do these things in my experience. We could do this. I've heard you could do this. Act, you know? So you can train that too. Some people are just aces and they have it. I mean, Michael Jordan, sure, he went to a lot of basketball practices, but he was just a gifted athlete. So mm -hmm. athletically, intellectually, there's variance there. But I do think that there is a lot of – there's a social element of stress in the world right now. There's the sort of environmental stressors. You know, it's getting hotter. The weather's more unpredictable. 
there's also the stress of knowing all that yeah. shit. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the big one. Yeah, that's yeah. a hard one. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's it's every day if you're connected to the internet and you don't have any sort of self restraint when it comes to news or anything like that, you're just bombarded by information that would have terrorized people like thousands of years ago, but now it's like a normal part of life. Normal part of life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things you said there is your own self restraint. I I'll go on a deep dive. Mm. We had three mass shootings in the last 12 days, one of them in the county that I live in, down mm-hmm. in Gilroy, in Santa Clara County. And it's not new. It, it shouldn't have the same impact that, you know, you sort of numb yourself up to it. But I've been doing a lot of reading on those, more than normal the last few days, you know? And it's like, that affects my mood. It makes me my stomach knot up a little bit. So there's a chronic stressor that's just invisible mm-hmm. to everyone even to yourself right mm-hmm. just plop that in the backpack you carry around yeah. all day uh-huh. so i think finding ways to relieve that stress is super important too right if we are the most stressed we've ever been what you know what do we do with that how do we relieve that how do we turn it mm-hmm. i think that's important mm-hmm. i think animals are, why do you did you read why zebras don't get ulcers no but now it's on my list so, so like why don't zebras get ulcers uh-huh. you know i mean that's a really interesting question do they get ulcers? Yeah, they don't. We, uh-huh. you know, they, uh, it's kind of funny. Like, who knows? Like, <laughs> who, who's digging in zebra guts to see if they have ulcers? And uh, also because it's stress-related, too. Ulcers are stress-induced, right? Yes. Yes, I believe so. I mean, the, the bacterium that's involved in it, I, I know there's a connection to stress. Uh-huh. And, and, and certainly, scientifically, I know there's some connection. I'm sure that there's also shown that there's not the same connection yeah. but certainly popularly we believe that right don't get don't stress out you'll get you'll ulcers you'll have a stroke right mm-hmm. why why have a stroke because you're gonna have high blood pressure you know what's crazy is like you can just put a blood pressure cuff on check your blood pressure and then just intentionally relax and lower your blood pressure <laughs> yeah. right yeah. you can do the opposite and actually this is why i had to stop watching like ufc fighting years ago is I, I'm clenching my fist. I would just clench my fist and tighten my muscles, and I, I'd even lean to the side mm-hmm. while I'm watching these guys fight each other, of course, because it's scary, you know. Uh, but I'm doing it for entertainment for some reason. But then I would realize, like, my blood pressure is up. Mm-hmm. My hands hurt because I've been squeezing them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, no, let's <laughs> let's watch The Office instead, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. This is not. I, don't do this on purpose. Uh-huh. Uh, it's funny because that's what happened to me I noticed I stopped playing video games for a long time and then I went back to playing video games and it was Halo and Halo is a violent game uh, and I was just you know like like crunched up and in that muscularly tense situation which is super interesting yeah 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 really interesting right and you're doing that on purpose for for what yeah, I mean what happens in the because that's a stress like like what yeah. we talked about when you're playing video games it's a you're doing work you're essentially doing work motivated by i would imagine dopamine but i'm not sure sure certainly i mean yeah, yeah you're trying to get some gain some victory there i'm, yeah. I'm sure uh, that's a dopamine yeah. Yeah. passing levels beating you know uh, obstacles accomplishments for sure and this is what i've just been reading in the book by behaved by robert sapolsky is about dopamine and about how dopamine the, let me see if i can pull some of the stuff out the so it's uh relative relative to the outcome of the reward or so uh, our relationship with dopamine starts when we learn something when we learn it then that sets the initial conditions for expectation of what will happen in the future the next time we do that activity yes but then once we've learned it it no longer is about that reward but it's about the expectation of that absolutely right okay absolutely yeah Mm -hmm. and so that that's that's a very interesting element of it because that's how the placebo effect can also Mm -hmm. be useful right yeah like i could tell you that i'm giving you steroids like all week at camp, I'm like, you're getting steroids. <laughs> yeah. And you're doing push-ups and like you're like, I I feel stronger maybe, but you wouldn't actually be stronger because you don't really know what it's like to take steroids. Interesting. But if you did take steroids last year because you wanted to get jacked and you went through a whole cycle of anabolic steroids and then you came to fish camp and I told you that you were cycling on anabolic steroids, your body would have a measurable increase in strength. Whoa. Due to the placebo effect. Yeah. I had a student at Stanford. I teach one of my writing and speaking courses. The sophomore level is called Drugs in the Brain. Uh-huh. And students love it, obviously, because <laughs> it's a it's a writing class. You have to write three papers. You have to give three presentations. But you, get to, you can study whatever you want within this sort of broad field. Uh-huh. And really, I don't care. Whatever it is you're interested in, do that because it's hard. And you're going to have to do research and like write something good and present to us. So find something that you're psyched about. 
And he his idea in a nutshell was like, Stanford students are smart enough. Like, we should use the placebo effect as a performance-enhancing drug for our sports. Interesting. And I was like, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Do it. But, of course, unless you train it with the actual substance, it won't work. And that's a really interesting thing. There's those, these studies in Italy where they, they worked with pain tolerance and opiates, uh, anabolic steroids and strength, and amphetamines and speed. Whoa. And so they would have track, you know, they give, they'd give track athletes a little bit of amphetamine, uh, which is very common. And a lot of track athletes take like Ritalin, and yeah. Adderall, mm. get a therapeutic exemption. Because if you don't suffer from those symptoms, then you actually just are taking amphetamines. Yeah. They can make you run faster. They can increase your VO2 max. They can decrease pain tolerance, mm. increase pain tolerance, mm. and they can also increase the contractions. So you can actually physically jump higher and run faster. Whoa. But it won't work unless you have it. But if you've trained on it, you can still get some of that, not the full effect. So that's super interesting because I've just been reading a book called Psychedelic Information Theory. Um, and it's a really interesting book uh, about uh, psychedelics and what they do. And, and so the same way that people have uh, found the receptor for cannab- cannabinoids, uh, um, they, this guy has found a receptor for a lot of the different hallucinogenic properties and stuff like that. Uh, but there's a specific point that you mentioned that I wanted to get. Oh yeah, the, so the the shamans actually take they they familiarize familiarize themselves with the substance before they do the things on their own or with other shamans basically who mm-hmm. teach them how to do it, and then eventually they start um, using it or start providing the ceremony. But when they provide the ceremony, they don't take a lot. They just take a small amount basically to put put themselves back into that state and then mm-hmm. guide the ceremony basically. Uh, and it's super interesting because that's that's I didn't know that fact before we started talking was that you you have to actually have familiarity with the substance involved. Sure, you can't be tripping balls when you're trying to lead the group, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like just the right amount to help you pe- be yeah, the spirit the leader, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh-huh. no doubt about it. Interesting. A, a lot of that psychedelic neuronal binding is serotonergic. So it's serotonin neurons are a lot of a lot of that binding and then also dopamine and I was super confident for a long time that the serotonin so on a given neurotransmitter or a neuron there are receptors for neurotransmitters but like serotonin has multiple types I think there are like seven different serotonin receptors and that means each of them have a different system in play after the fact mm-hmm. so the serotonin one receptor actually shuts the neuron down mm-hmm. and this is is important in things like uh, antidepressants selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors the way that without getting into much detail the way that drug works is it just causes you to release a lot of serotonin mm-hmm. it, it re- the serotonin that you release is not taken back up into the cell it's blocked so you have more serotonin in the synapse more time for it to be in there to bind to the receptors. Mm-hmm. And actually that presynaptic neuron that's releasing serotonin has serotonin one receptors on it on the sides. Mm-hmm. And if you get serotonin leaking out of the synaptic cleft onto the neuron that released it, it will bind to them and shut that neuron down. Mm-hmm. It says, whoa, 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 Nelly, we got water coming out of the sink here. Whoa. We better shut the sink off. It's a safety valve. Right? Where a serotonin 2 receptor is on the postsynaptic neuron, it's receiving that that, uh, serotonin molecule, and then boom, it's sending a signal down that says, let's go. Right? Uh A serotonin 3, I always thought, was an ion gated, which meant instead of sending an electrical signal, it released ions into the cell. Uh, I believe that came into. Uh, some uh, discussion just with my own memory. <laughs> I think I was talking yeah. to a student about it, and then I looked it up, and I thought because I thought for sure that LSD binded to the serotonin three receptor, and it was a, a, a voltage gated ion channel. But I don't know for sure. That doesn't matter for where we are right now. The whole yeah. point is that it's complicated. It's not just dopamine gets released and binds to the dopamine receptor. It, is it the same thing with dopamine as well, that there are multiple different factors? There are two of, dopamine okay. receptors, okay, interesting. D1 and D2, and uh-huh. one is inhibitory and one is excitatory, I believe. Okay. I don't and know. And serotonin which has seven. I think it has seven. Yeah. yeah. And any neurobiologist out there, I, I may be wrong, but it's multiple. It's like five, seven, eight. There's a lot of them. Yeah. And then what are the other main ones? We've got serotonin, we've got dopamine, and then... Um, Norepinephrine, okay. epinephrine. Uh-huh. Those are the four main uh, monoamines and catecholamines that I studied. And those are neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters. Right? Yeah. And then what's the difference between that and a neurohormone or, or a hormone? 
Okay, well, a neurotransmitter binds directly onto a receptor of a cell and causes some reaction, but it's released from a brain, but a hormone travels through the blood. Uh, okay, yep. Right? Mm -hmm. So in our classic stress pathway, my favorite neurotransmitter, uh, corticotropin-releasing factor, you'll also see a corticotropin-releasing hormone. Mm -hmm. I actually know the guy who discovered it, Wiley Vale. He's since passed. He worked at the Salk Institute. I met him at a neuroscience conference one time and tried to explain the stress response to him, actually, when I was only been a grad student for like two months. And he was like, cool, cool, far out. And he gave me his business card and I showed it to my friend. He was like, dude, did you make an ass out of yourself for a while? I was like, yeah, probably. Did you, did you know who it was? No idea. No idea. And then later I went back and talked to him and he was totally out. He was a really nice guy. Uh, corticotropin releasing factor, and, and Wileyville wants it to be, wanted it to be corticotropin releasing factor, not corticotropin releasing yeah. hormone because... Corticotropin releasing factor also works as a neurotransmitter in the brain and it works uh, within the stress response itself. So it, it's got like it's multiple roles. And so he believed it to be a factor, not a hormone, because it's a neurotransmitter. Okay, so what are, are there other factors? What are some other important it, factors? It can work as a hormone and it can work as but, a neurotransmitter. Uh, but uh, the, the neuro. Uh, neuro so. Uh, Cortical releasing factor mm -hmm. is one of a, a factor. Are there other factors? Yes, okay. there, there are other factors. Uh -huh. CRF is the main factor in the stress response. It's released from the hypothalamus. It goes down to the pituitary gland mm. and it causes the release of ACTH. Mm. Uh, ACTH is released from the pituitary gland directly into the bloodstream. It travels in, in human mammals uh, down to the kidney, to the uh, medullary glands, uh -huh. and it causes the release of cortisol. Uh, cortisol travels through the bloodstream and, and runs throughout the body. It's part of that sort of, excuse me, preparation, stressful events. It can increase blood pressure. It can increase, you know, uh, alertness. It gets back to the brain, and if it gets back to uh, the hypothalamus, it can cause a, a, a shutdown in mm. CRF release. So it's a negative feedback loop. It can also work at the level of the pituitary, so it can feedback at both of those. So it's got its own feedback system set up uh. Uh, so that you don't get too much released. And what's really interesting is there's a CRF binding protein, and that binding protein, if it's made concurrently with CRF and released at the same time, it binds to it and makes it inactive. And it's a very important mechanism for one example, uh, when human females give birth, mm -hmm. it's one of the most stressful events in the world. Mm -hmm. They have this massive release of CRF. It could cause a stress response so bad that they would die. Mm -hmm. CRF binding protein is increased mega during this time and it buffers that stress response. Whoa. And it's just like one wild <laughs> thing, you know, like the brain is so crazy. You wreck a motorcycle and hurt your leg really bad, oh. like really, really bad. If your body's endocannabinoid system didn't Whoa. kick in and cut that pain down, oh. you would die from shock. You know, oh. like that pain is so great that a lot of people just pass out. Your body's internal system is handling that. And then later, of course, you use morphine when you get to the hospital, right? <laughs> yeah. Which, unsurprisingly, binds to the cannabinoid receptors, right? So, so this is why they're... Because I, I came across a piece of evidence, which I've not been able to find again, which is that they... And hospitals in Israel and ambulances in Israel, they actually are injecting um, large doses of THC into their bodies to... At, right after traumatic brain injury, basically, to protect the, tr the brain. Um, have mm. you heard about this at all? I haven't heard about okay. it. And I, yeah, I'm not sure about that because I wasn't able to, to refine it. Um, well, I, in Israel is way ahead of the U.S. Yep. in, in mm -hmm. research in THC and yep. CBN and CBD. And, and so mm -hmm. that's of interest. That I don't know much about that. Yeah, I think I can find it again. My friend John, John Hoagland, he, 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 he's creating, trying to create... Uh, uh, THC out of uh, yeast, brewers yeast, and stuff like that, um, and so yeah, it's a, whole, yeah, a whole bunch of a uh, whole bunch of different different uh, uh, evidences for a lot of different stuff in terms of CBD and THC. Yeah. What do you know about? It? What, are, is there any? What is the endocannabinoid system like? What What is the endocannabinoid system, and what is it? What is the relationship to the stress? Well, it's got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies yeah. uh, in, our, <laughs> in our brain. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to sort of come across as you study drugs and 
natural systems is the reason that drugs work mm. or exist at all is they hijack some system in the brain, mm. right? If pine cones had some chemical in them that got like released dopamine, we'd all be snorting <laughs> and pine eating pine cones, yeah, right? Because yeah. we want that shortcut to get to dopamine release. Mm. The, to get dopamine release is tough. You, you got to set up a reward and then yeah. you got to build expectation. But like on a day-to-day basis, not everybody is getting like these big dopamine hits, you know? And yeah. certainly that's one of the things we seek, right? Mm. Um, so drugs only exist as things that we, you know, poppies that we eat or plants that we smoke or cacti that we boil, shred and boil and drink until we <laughs> puke. another random... Vine, yeah, 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 totally. Uh, They only exist because they hijack some operating system that already exists. And the endocannabinoid system has a role in sleeping and wakefulness, in um, uh, desire to eat. I was going to say gustation, but that's Mm -hmm. taste. But in our our digestive systems, uh, they have some role in, um, you know, basic properties of the brain, like learning, memory, stress. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't study the endocannabinoid system a lot, but I do know people that do, and I, I do know that, that making the brain run is a—it's an interesting prospect. It mm. takes a lot of of effort. So, what I, you know, if you smoke pot, you often get the munchies. But if you didn't smoke, like if you smoked a certain type of pot, you would never experience that. And you'd be like, what? Mm. Everyone's always talking like there's this trope of smoking pot and like eating. But if you're smoking like some sativas that's super high energy, um, you know, get you out and and doing stuff, you're probably not going to get the munchies, right? And and we are just unlocking so much of this potential because, of course, weed was just weed for the longest time. Like this batch made you super anxious and this batch melted you into the couch (laughs) and this batch didn't really do anything to you because it's all different from different places and treated differently and... We're still not in a place yet where we have that consistency, even though we're measuring things like THC. There are profiles there, how much CBD is there, how much THC is there, how much CBN is there, mm. um, how, how much of that are you getting when you're ingesting, what's the mechanism through which you're doing it. Mm. Um, so I do know that there are a lot of things that can be really useful um, in, in using the, the remnants of that plant. Mm. Um, CBD and uh, pain relief is something like joint pain, I know that's the thing. I personally have a tincture with a small amount of THC, a small amount of CBD, and a fairly sizable amount of CBN. Mm, for sleep? Or- and, yeah, it yeah. puts me to sleep, mm. boy. Uh, you know, a, a nurse in Santa Rosa makes it, and it's got some mint oil in it, and five drops under the tongue. It's like a, a vegetable-based oil that it's in. And, you know, 20 minutes later, go lay down. Read a book on the Kindle for a while, and then boom, you'll drop it right on your face because you have fallen asleep. <laughs> That'd be interesting. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So I mean, you know, I didn't know about CBN until and there's like a thousand. I mean, there, there's a large amount of chemicals inside of that. And more and more yeah. that we'll find once we start, yeah. you know, really looking around. Yeah, and I'm really interested in where maybe you know some people at Stanford studying this where where it's going in terms of psilocybin, in terms of all these other things, and whether those whether are there are systems in the body that that react in the same way the endocannabinoid system. The endocannabinoid system seems more far-reaching in terms of just like it's everywhere. It's in every cell of the body almost. Yeah. Um, uh, but this other one, it's the 5-HT2A, I believe. That's the, or 5-HT, I can't remember. I'm not going to do it. But, but the one in psychedelic information theory, there's one particular thing, and I think it's like 5-H2. Well, that's, like that. that's a, a serotonin so, receptor okay, subtype. Okay. 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 5-HT is 5-hydroxytryptamine. That's uh-huh. serotonin. Okay. And then the 2A would be receptor 2 subtype A. Oh, okay. And that's the stuff. You see what I mean? And I was like, oh, I thought LSD binds to the 5-HT3 and it's ion channel. So I, I don't know for sure personally that psilocybin binds to the 5-HT2A, mm-hmm. but I would be like, yeah, sure. I mean, if somebody who knew that shit had told me, I'd be like, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense, yeah. Um, what, what is, so what you're saying is exactly right. It's a much narrower focus. Right of where that substance is going to have its impact. Interesting. The only reason it is is because molecularly it fits there. So another example that I think is really important when I say to you, like, pine cones could be drugs. They're not uh, at all. Uh, but <laughs> what is uh, a substance that we gather uh, from plant matter that has an impact in a way that we wouldn't think is in soy, 
There are a chemical called a phytoestrogen, and it's naturally occurring in soy. It is not estrogen, Mm -hmm. but it's fairly similar in shape, Mm -hmm. so much so that it can bind to estrogen receptors. And so there have been studies where they looked at Asian families in the Hawaiian Islands and like Guam, Mm -hmm. and they eat a really high soy diet. And what they found was that in infants... Actually, a human infant, when it's born, is you know has a, a biological sex, mm-hmm. but it has as a fetus, it has both systems. The presence or absence of testosterone causes the male system to grow or to be depleted. But if in utero the diet consists of a lot of soy, mm-hmm. in a female it can actually masculinize mm-hmm. that's that uh, baby. In a male, the presence of a lot of estrogens, phytoestrogens, can override the signaling of testosterone from the tiny little, you know, fetal testicles. Mm. And it can cause feminization in males. And and they're seeing that in these populations. They eat a super high amount of soy. And was soy uh, higher? Was that a recent intervention? Of so being soy being very high in their diet, or has that existed for a long time? Existed for a long time. Okay. Right. Um, but what's happened is that soy has become much more available in the forms of like tofu, uh, soy milk. Yeah. So in 1910, growing up on Okinawa, yeah. you ate a lot of soybeans and soy sauce, but you didn't eat a bunch of tofu all the time. You didn't drink soy milk. Yeah. You didn't have that as a replacement in your diet. Uh-huh. Where you might be a young mother that never drinks cow's milk because you think it's gross, and which it is, by the way. Uh, but you drink soy milk instead, and it turns out that you do it all the time, and so you have a very high level of it. So that is fairly recent in mm. societally. Interesting. And it's a subtle shift, but it's been shown in those populations. So I, I kind of got off on a tangent there to show that substances can have an effect simply because they mimic an existing system psilocybin being one of those mm. the you're poisoning yourself mm. but it feels really good right yeah. a different mushroom can kill you yeah. because it has a chemical that causes your brain to you know short circuit right but this one does it just right <laughs> um the some of the things i really like about psilocybin is the research that that is coming out now showing its effects on um, anxiety uh-huh. end of life anxiety johns hopkins has been doing clinical studies showing that patients that are, are terminal they're facing imminent death mm-hmm. They experience, as a, a one could uh, theorize, an intense amount of anxiety. One session with a physician, with a counselor, with a, a moderate to high dose of psilocybin prepared mm-hmm. for the lab, and, and sort of walking through some of these experiences, whatever comes to mind, and then one follow-up session, 100% efficacy in curing that anxiety. Wow. Uh, there are studies from the 60s and 70s out of Norway, out of Canada, out of even the U.S., and, and through the VA, of alcoholics being given a LSD treatment, sometimes being walked through therapy, sometimes incarcerated victims in Canada. They were alcoholics that were in prison, were given LSD, and allowed to sort of trip out. Incredibly high results for uh, them abstaining from alcohol up to a year out. Like 40, 50, 60% up to one year not coming back to alcohol. Do you know what our number one right now government approved treatment for alcoholism is? Uh, 12 steps. 12 step program. (laughs) You're an alcoholic. Uh, I'm sorry. You got four DUIs. As the judge, Hammer Daddy, I sentence you to 12 step program because it's our most effective treatment for alcoholism. Do you know the statistics? It's probably not very high. It's about 10%. (laughs) About 10% of people that complete a 12 step program uh, stay uh, off of alcohol a year out. Mm. And and LSD looks like a a few thousand clinical trials, some sort of nefarious, (laughs) some done on alcoholic prisoners, uh, but many of them done through the VA and and done on willing visuals, which interestingly, Mm. uh, the person who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill W., Mm. uh, was a, a treatment. Uh, at the VA on LSD that cured his alcoholism. Interesting. And that's part of his path was to use his experience in his acid trip that helped cure him to create the 12-step program. For him, it was about religion. Mm -hmm. 
It's very religious, yeah. the 12-step program, which, by the way, doesn't work so well if you're not a Christian, yeah. right? You're kind of blind to that. Uh-huh. But it, it, what the idea there is that who, whoever does this trip, you can experience something that's personal to you and it can have lasting impact. And, it, it, and that's probably where the... I'm not sure that's totally where the, the thing is, but one of the steps is to recognize that there is a higher power, uh, and I'm sure that that probably was very influenced by the by the uh, by his trip, essentially. Too, I, I would imagine so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have personally used some psychotropic substances, and it can be a really powerful experience. Yeah, and so I can imagine that being part of it. We're seeing it in prisons in Brazil. They're using ayahuasca uh, to try and decrease recidivism. Uh, Timothy Leary did the Good Friday experiments uh, with students and, and looking at religious experiences and, and psilocybin. Um, there was a, a, the Concord prison experiments that they did with psilocybin and recidivism from prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an often discussed study that wasn't followed up and, and wasn't super well planned out, but I love that we're circling back to it because I think there's power there. It's a mushroom, guys. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it, it's not a, a hardcore... You know, I think SSRIs are dangerous. I I mean, I personally think they're dangerous. And I think direct to marketer consuming, uh, direct to consumer marketing of pharmaceuticals is outrageous. It just drives me crazy. There are only two countries that I know of in the world that allow it. It's the U.S. and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And doesn't that say something? Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be a commercial that says, ask your doctor about this drug. Sure, there's a lot of really bad side effects. Yeah. We'll help you pay for it because yeah. we want to study how this works because we're looking to make money, 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 money. Yeah, I was on SSRI for a long time, maybe 10 years, and it took me a long time full of a lot of anhedonia, the, the type of, you know, it's like that, that depression that was always sitting under there on the surface but was like that serotonin kind of keyhole kind of, you know, was... I don't exactly remember exactly what you said, but whatever happened happened to that receptor, and then it's like took a long time to rehabituate to life without those things. Absolutely. Yeah. Here's the thing: mm. you can have dysregulation of serotonin in your brain, and it can cause you to have depression. Mm. That's a I can see that to be factual. The serotonin depression hypothesis is being pushed back against, yep. and I'm actually an advocate of that pushback. But I could see how if you had dysregulation in your brain mm. for whatever reason that that could cause you to f- not feel great, to feel what we think what we think of and agree upon as depression. Mm-hmm. Taking a drug that just blasts you with serotonin <laughs> is never going to fix it. Yeah. It's a it's a yeah. really crude patch. Yeah. And and what you just said was it actually your brain had to change again yeah. to handle this influx of of serotonin that's being put out by these pills every day. It, it, then it took time after that for it to come back to where it was. Yeah. So this we were talking yesterday about you know, modern medicine and, and particularly pharmaceuticals, they don't fix anything. Yeah. They just smash it, you know, and say, well, we'll just try and force our way through this. Yeah. If you don't understand and deal with the underlying issue, then you're actually never going to get a chance to, to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. And truly, if you look at the data from, uh, you know, the sort of metadata uh, from serotonin research studies, SSRIs are about chance mm. that they're going to work for you. Interesting. And then the idea is that you don't stop. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's like you got to have a, a set time period where you try this thing. Like, yeah, I, I just might, you know, like grandfather died, my father died. You know, this I'm going to have to go for this three months of grief, grief, and I'm just going to use this as this bridge so that I can take some time, and then maybe w- once I get through it, then then start to think about getting off of it and really attempting to deal with that emotional trigger. Yeah. That, but it's like. Or like with the doctor that I was just like, oh yeah, just take it, you know, yeah. figure it out, you know, sometime so, so it'll work itself out basically. Is you know, if you were, if as a friend of mine, if you came up to me and said, my grandfather and father just died, I'm feeling really depressed. Mm. I want, I'm thinking about taking three months of SSRIs to help me cope with this and mm. then I'm going to stop. I would plead with you to never do that. Mm, interesting. I would say, go exercise. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Join a book club. Yeah. Uh, get Maybe, a dog. Yeah. yeah. Go, go get a garden plot. Mm. Get into a theater program. Go do anything at all, particularly exercise, actually. Yeah. Exercise has been shown to have all these positive neurobiological benefits. Do any of those things. Live with your grief. Mm. Embrace the grief. Be sad. That's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Be super sad. And some days be like, I need a me day today. Yeah. I'm putting on a hoodie. Yeah. I'm watching Netflix. 
I'm going to cry. Yeah. I'm going to process the super shitty thing that happened and don't think you're a bad person because of it, right? Mm. That's how. That's what I think. Mm. That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, just one, one minute, two minutes left. What's kind of like a concept idea thing that has really changed your life for the benefit in terms of either stress, creativity, just one thing that you've thought about in the last month or that's come across your, your plate or something? I think it's the idea of framing. It's the idea that something that is stressful and scares you could also be something that you could change that framing to be excited about it, to still be scared of it, but embrace it, challenges. I like to tell it to people, if something's really hard, instead of being like, that's too hard, I don't want to do it, say, geez, this is hard. How are we going to get around? It's like, what? let's figure this out. Yeah. You know, even if it's super hard and I'm kind of being jokey about it, but like, even if it's like, wow, I'm feeling like this is super stressful with my family right now and this is really breaking me down. Mm-hmm. Turn it around and say, okay, I love my family. This is hard. Let's figure out a way to do this. Let's come together as a team. Man, that conversation didn't go well. Mm-hmm. I feel bad about it. Maybe I'm a bad person. No, I'm not a bad person. I love her. She loves me. That was crazy. Like, let's let's get around this. Let's find a way to figure this out. It's going to be okay. That frame shift is huge because it goes from pity your stomach. This is dreadful. I'm going to be marrying on this for weeks to, wow, that was wild. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to do that again. I definitely want to do that again. This is very interesting. You know, let's engage with this more. Let's keep talking about this. Mm. Let's find a way to get through it. That shift changes everything. And I think we can all do that, mm. you know? In a book, great book by a Stanford professor, The Upside of Stress by Kelly McGowan, goes ex- into exactly that, that the, there's a, a stress response and then the nuance in the stress response, there's a, if you view the stress as a challenge as opposed to a threat, uh, it'll engage your nervous system in a way that, that, that will change, basically. Absolutely. I took a class with Kelly on oh, willpower. Yeah, right. the, and she wrote a book on willpower. And it was yeah. the same idea. Huh. Like, willpower is a muscle that you could flex. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool. And that, that's been a really interesting idea for me, too. It's about framing. Mm. So it's been a lot of fun. Cool. Thank you Thanks so for having me on the show. Yeah. And uh, how can people find out more about you or the class that you're teaching, the rhetorical? Are you guys putting that stuff online? Yeah. The program in writing and rhetoric at Stanford University. You can Google us, PWR at Stanford. Um, the Hume Center for Writing and Speaking, Outdoor Education at Stanford, uh, the, the fly fishing class is Outdoor 60, and uh, my email address is russ1, R-U-S-S, the number one, at stanford.edu. Thank you so much. You bet. Yeah.